All right, let's do this. We're going live in five, four, three. All right, good afternoon and welcome back to Intrepid Business. Uh, I'm your host, Todd Schnick. You know, I say Intrepid Business, I don't know how to classify today's conversation. Uh, when you hear about the most interesting man in the world commercials, uh, I, I don't think of that commercial. I think of my guest today because what a what an interesting personality with so many, so many very interesting experiences and and uh, when you go to this gentleman's website, uh, such an interesting, disparate, exotic collection of different information. It's really quite fascinating. So Lord knows where this conversation is going to go today, but I'm really looking forward to it. Say hello to my guest. His name is Kevin Kelly. He's a writer, thinker. I call him a student and a futurist. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a real honor to be here. Thanks, Todd. Yeah, I appreciate you giving me some very valuable time. I know how busy your schedule is and, and how you maximize every minute every day, so I'm grateful for the time. Uh, I have a feeling that most people listening to this show have a sense of who Kevin Kelly is, certainly if they're familiar with Wired Magazine. But do me a favor. Uh, take a few quick seconds. Inform the audience a bit about you and your background. Yeah, I'm um college dropout who went to Asia instead, uh, got a... A self-awarded degree in uh, Asian studies by um, drifting through most of the Asian countries in the early 70s. And um, while I was in Asia, I got infected with a really bad case of optimism <laughs> and uh, came back um, interested in the future um, and got my first job working for the Whole Earth Catalog, which was a Bible for hippies telling them how to do stuff. It was kind of the early maker version of things. Um, and while at the Whole Earth Catalog, I got uh, involved with computers, which were just sort of being born at the time. And we saw them more as personal augmentation devices rather than Big Brother. And um, they really the whole view of high technology is something that was in our favor shifted tremendously when uh, we plugged computers into the phone and they went online and uh, in that online world, I sort of saw the, um, the Amish in the technology and um, was involved with starting the first online access to uh, public access to the internet, did the first hackers conference, did the first, virtual reality jamboree and um, have been interested in the social consequences of technology rather than technology itself. And so that's what I write about these days. I tried to figure out what this means rather than, you know, whether it's faster or cheaper. I'm interested in, in its, it being technology's meaning in our lives. Yeah, no, I clearly uh, it's a big part of what you write about. Uh, but I'm already going to go off script here. Uh, this idea of, of how you're an optimist, and I love that. I've heard you say that before. It's my assessment, Kevin, that most people aren't optimistic about the future. I mean, is, is that your assessment? Yeah, right now we have um, a little bit of an allergy to the future because we've been burned so many times from – things that we were promised and when they arrived they weren't quite uh, what they were advertised and so um we have a very jaded view of the future and and there is a i would say a, a general a lack of a 
of a future that we desire to live in. I mean, uh, a picture, a vision of the future that we want to live in. Nobody is looking forward to it. And I think um, that's partly not just Hollywood and science fiction writers' fault for not providing it to us, but I think it's actually a very difficult thing to do right now, which is to imagine a fully fleshed out, coherent future that we actually want to live in. But I think it is... I think that's where we are headed, and so um, there's a disconnect between what we can imagine and where we're going. It's a miserable existence, not being <laughs> not being optimistic, right? I mean, uh, it. How do we how do we snap out of that? How do we how do we turn that around? Well, I think you have to remember that the optimists decide our future, yeah. not pessimists, and so uh, I think. Um, you you behave better when you when you are optimistic about where we're going, and you ha- kind of have to be in a certain sense to really commit to some of the big projects. So one of the ways I'm suggesting that we try and become more optimistic is is try to make things that might take more than a quarter or five years or even our lifetime to complete, is to work on some things that may take uh, multi generations to complete, and that forces you in some senses uh, to be more optimistic. Well, we're going to talk about th- that later on the show. I, I, that's a big weakness from all of us, I think, is that we're not thinking deeply enough about the future. And it's not 2015 we're talking about. It's it's no. much deeper than that. Before we get to that, though, uh, one of the things I do want to talk about is a recent project. Actually, it's not a recent project. It's something you've been working on for quite some time. Uh, but put out a, a book on this called Cool Tools, a Catalog of Possibilities. Uh, why did you have to put that project out? So... Um, there's several strands of it, but one thing is that I, my first job, as I mentioned, was working for the Whole Earth Catalog, which was sort of the uh, a blog and the web on newsprint in the, the early eight, uh, 70s, and it was uh, recommendations for good stuff. And it was only positive recommendations. There was no kind of comparative or negative reviews. It was just people recommending great stuff that worked that enabled them to make stuff or make stuff happen. And so I, I, I was doing that for a while and then um, the web came along and did it better than, than print could do. Um, and so I kind of transferred that impulse to share and rec- recommended things in cool tools on a site called cool tools. And so for 11 years, um, every weekday, we've run one recommendation, and I took the best of those to put them into a book. And the reason why I wanted to put them into a book was I wanted to make a plastic storage crate full of tools that I gave my kids when they left home, saying, you know, here's some stuff that you probably don't know about that would really be useful in almost anything you do. And I wanted to fill it with, you know, things that they would not normally encounter. But it was very easy to fill the crate very fast, and I couldn't cram everything in that I wanted to. So I said, well, I'll make a book of all the other ones I can't include, and the book will point to them, to the other ones that are not in the crate. And so I wanted three copies of this book because I have three kids. And I made the book for them, basically. It was here is a, I call it a catalog of possibilities of things that would allow you to leverage your own individual power and amplify it and doing all kinds of things that you didn't even know you could do, like build your own house or start your own business or run for local office and win, you know, uh, design a, a graphic novel, whatever it is that you 
could imagine someone else doing, you actually can do that with technology today. And here are some of the tools that you should use. And so the purpose of this on paper was to put it in this great, to give it to my kids. And I thought, well, I'll make it available to everybody else as well. Well, I wanted to go down that path of the of the tagline, the catalog of possibilities. I mean, it, it is what it is. It's a curated collection of interesting tools, but it, it, it's not just that. It is a book full of possibilities. There's things that you can do that most people don't realize they can do. I mean, that's the real power of this thing is 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 providing you with weapons. Maybe that's not the best word to use, but <laughs> yeah. the ability to do some amazing things that, that you don't realize you can do. Right, exactly. Most people don't realize um, that you can rent tools and you don't have to buy them. And, and that's sort of the subtext of this is you look through this big thing filled with 1,500 different really great things and you kind of think, oh, I want that. That's really cool. I want that. But we're not trying to, to encourage anybody to become a you know consumer access and buy all this stuff. You don't actually – need to buy them you just need to know that they exist because even knowing that you can rent a bulldozer if you wanted to suddenly opens up all kinds of possibilities and projects and things that you may not have even thought of before and the purpose of these tools and knowing that they exist is is to open up these gateways to other worlds and other worlds of action that you thought were close to you, but actually are, are extremely available. And so your your potential has just ex- can expand by seeing all the things that you could do with the right tool. Kevin, it's not even that I think people think the world's are, these opportunities are close to them. I think most people don't even pay attention to some of these things. I mean, I think it's sad, frankly, that you have to put this kind of work out there because I think one of the biggest problems with a lot of people that I interact with, and maybe that says something about who I'm interacting with, but there's so many people out there that just aren't aware of all these possibilities. I mean, I'll sit down and have conversations over a cup of coffee and say, hey, did you did you hear about that new product? Did you check out this thing? Did you hear about that? And they're like, oh, no, no. Yeah. Why, why is that? How come our culture is such that most people just are completely oblivious to things that, that you present in this book? Yeah, it's um, it, it's a good question. I think there is a sense of, of overwhelming choice and possibilities where there's so much going on, so many new things that we feel that we can't keep up. And if we can't keep up, we feel ignorant. And therefore, we don't even want to kind of get into that with because then we'll feel stupid because we only know 1% of it and maybe it's the wrong, the wrong 1%. And so there is a tendency to kind of come back to the things that we're familiar with or strong with. But I, I, I you know, I, I think... Uh, this is a kind of like almost like a thing of traveling, which is that you travel to um, keep your mind flexible and to be encountering things that are different because thinking different is really the only true asset for wealth in an, an idea economy. You really have to keep thinking different, different but connected. And, and I think that is a real challenge when we are all connected is to keep thinking different, even though we're all connected. And so, um, the, uh, the, the advantages or the, the benefits for going outside of what, you know, and encountering things that you're unfamiliar with, like, you know, wild mushrooms or, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, web apps or, or whatever it is that is unknown to you. I, I think the advantage is that even if it's not exactly what you're interested in, it can provoke a new idea, a, a different way of thinking. And that is 
true value in today's economy. Hmm. I don't have to think on that. Maybe we go go into that a little bit deeper later on in the show, but that's absolutely the possibility is opened up by this. I, I, but this is a constant process, right? You don't just get Kevin's latest book and then you're, then you're done researching cool tools. I mean, this is a process that never ends, right? I mean, you should always be open to not only new cool tools, but more importantly, the opportunities to leverage from them, right? This is a never-ending process. Absolutely. Like uh, one of the great futurists, Alvin Toffler, had a great hack, which he often did, and, and it was really typified his lifelong learning, which is he was often in, invited to speak at conferences, and um, which which he would, you know, as a professional would do. But he said there was always in the hotel, whatever there was a conference, there was always another conference going on in a different ballroom, and he would always go afterwards and attend the other conference, whenever, no matter what it was. It might have been like, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, um, people selling um, pool supplies or whatever it was. And he said that it was never failed to be completely captivating because it was this other world he didn't know about and he was being introduced to it and you'd sit in and you're talking inside talk and um, it would always provoke something, some new idea in him. And so I think this idea of like deliberately seeking out or deliberately immersing yourself in these other little corners of the world, which is really easy to do with the web these days. um, I think that's powerful. I think that's a powerful way to keep learning and and keep thinking different well it's an interesting segue to uh, the next discussion topic which is your intense study of the amish and if you've ever seen a picture of kevin kelly then you understand how (laughs) how deeply involved he is in studying that culture and it's uh, kevin i've been podcasting five years i've never spoken about the amish on a podcast you know and so i'm certainly aware of them uh, and and i think my attitude towards it is symbolic of most people's out there that it's such a unique, such a different, such a strange culture that you almost are afraid of it and 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 don't want to even think on it or, or think I can't waste any time in my life studying something as oddball as as this culture. Why is that something that's such of interest to you? Well, just to, to summarize for for maybe someone who's not familiar with Amish, Amish are perceived as being kind of anti technological or almost uh, Luddite in a sense of being um, against technology because they, um, at different levels, will not have cars, not have electricity, not have modern clothes, use very um, traditional horse-drawn farming practices, and and most of them are farmers. That picture is not quite correct. in the sense that there are different uh, types of Amish, and some will use uh, electricity and not cars, and some will have, um, uh, you know, the, 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 they'll select the the level of technology that they want for different purposes. Some will use chainsaws, some won't. Some will use cell phones, some won't, etc. And this is the the message of, of, that I got from the Amish and studying them is that. Um, they are actually in some ways not much different than many of us. So we don't have broadcast TV at our home and never have, but of course we're the first in our neighborhood to have internet access. Um, And if you ask most people, you'll find out that that many of them kind of will be doing something very modern, but they'll they'll still have vinyl records or they'll still, they won't use the clothes dryer. They'll hang things out. And, 
that that's sort of a, that's sort of an Amish reaction, which is they the Amish are really big on using GMOs, genetically modified crops. Um, they um, use solar panels without, even though they don't have grid electricity. So you look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. How can how can they accept one or the other? But we also ourselves do that in our lives. But the difference between us and the Amish. What makes the Amish unique is they do, they do it collectively rather than individually. So they have a whole whole society or a whole parish kind of a community at once that has kind of converged on what they select and what they don't. And they secondly, they have a very explicit criteria on why they choose something. And that is they have for two reasons. is They'll use technologies that will bring their families together and bring their communities together. So if, if it helps keep their family so they can have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with their family every day at home. That's technology that they want. If it technology that sends them apart into the rooms to watch stuff, they don't want it. And if it brings their communities together, which is why they don't have cars, because you can only go 15 miles with a horse so they, they're forced to shop locally, forced to visit locally, forced to entertain locally, then they want that. And so... Anything else, if cell phones will help them bring that about, they'll use cell phones. And um, I think that's the lesson from the Amish, which is that um, we want to have a criteria. We want to have some way to select of all these choices that are coming out to say, I want this and I don't want that because it's getting this technology helps me achieve this. Is that the biggest lesson to be learned from the Amish? I mean, you partially answered the question that that we have to be very intentional and very purposeful yep. about the decisions you make. That that it yep. seems to me most in our culture don't think along those lines. No, no, they don't. And um, uh, I think also the, the other lesson about the Amish is that they are minimites in the sense that they are trying to minimize the amount of technology in their lives, which I think is a good idea. Um, you just want the the tools that are going to help you achieve what you want and then forget about the rest because there's just so much stuff. Um, and so in that sense, um, I'm a minimite in the sense I'm trying to select and reduce the, the amount of technology so that I just use the ones that are useful for what I want to do. But I'm different from the Amish and I'm not Amish because the Amish are not interested in maximizing the amount of technology in the world for others to choose from, which is what I am interested in. So while I am minimizing in my own life, I want to actually keep opening up and keep increasing the amount of, of potential technology so that others will be able to find the right mix of technology for their, their lives. And the Amish are only doing one half of that, which is minimizing. They're not trying to maximize the amount of technology in the world at large. So I think we want to do both. You want to minimize it in your own life and maximize it for all. All right. Kevin Kelly will be back after this quick message. We'll be right back. Wondering if technology can help you run your business better? To help you better manage your data? To make more informed, more strategic, and faster business decisions? Say hello to Savad Business Solutions. We don't rest until we identify and put into place customized solutions to remove the bottlenecks from your organization, making you better, faster, and more effective. Learn more at SavanSolutions.com. That's S-I-V-A-D Solutions.com. All right, I'm 
back with Kevin Kelly. Kevin, uh, so uh, thank you for sharing some insights on the Amish. Uh, another area of intense interest to you is Asia. And uh, you mentioned at the very top of the show that uh, dropped out of school and, and went directly to Asia. And as I understand it, you just got back from a trip over there. Uh, why is, uh, has this been such a lifelong passion for you? Yeah. Um, first, there's two reasons. One is, you know, when I first went to Asia, boy, I was, uh, you know, I was coming from suburban New Jersey and uh, growing up in the 50s and 60s. And it's really hard to remember how parochial and small everything was at that time. I have never, never ate Chinese food, never saw chopsticks or anything like that. And so I was went directly to my first stop was Hong Kong and then Taiwan. It was like, oh, my gosh, there is this entire other world ancient civilization that I was completely ignorant of and they think differently about things. And so I was forced to start thinking differently and I each time I go to China, Asia or China, Indonesia, India, whatever it is, um, I am constantly uh, being confronted with alternative ways of doing things and as i said that keeps the mind supple and uh helps me try to think differently about other things that are closer to home um and i think that it's a you know that practice that that kind of rehearsal of of changing your mind of uh trying to bend your mind to, to come to something in a different way is extremely valuable for the kind of work I do, which is trying to think about the future because you're you're constantly having to challenge the assumptions of what everybody knows because what everybody knows is not always correct. And so the the um, that that going to Asia, traveling, seeing people do things differently, seeing people lift at themselves out of poverty, which seemed impossible, just doing these grand things uh for me gives me inspiration and confidence and the practice to think differently and think long term and think uh optimistically that's what i get from asia well i love how you said uh, a few minutes ago that that travel is one of those things where you keep your mind flexible which enables you to think differently which is so critical in the idea economy as you said so this right. this notion of exposing yourself to a different kind of culture that does things differently that thinks differently is obviously in, in beneficial to our own uh, lifelong education. Now, but yeah. I, I listened to a recent conversation of yours where you said um, surviving that initial trip uh, out of school was very important to you to prove yourself that you could survive in this world. I mean, that's that's another that's another import to doing something like this, where where you you study and spend time with a different culture is to know that yeah, I can survive anywhere. Yeah, I mean. Uh, that includes kind of you know the backpacking right. Appalachian Trail work, uh, uh, work wasn't really work the play that I did, or even riding a bike across the U.S. But in in parts of Asia, in the mountains, say in in Nepal or parts of Tibet, they're they're they're, they're pretty minimal. Um, they're they're living very very simply with very little, and um, once you're kind of in that mode of traveling there, you realize that it's not that hard to get comfortable with very, very little. Um, 
there's kind of a minimum amount that you need to kind of um, survive. And, and once you realize that you could be sort of content doing that, that's extremely liberating because if you think about well, what's the worst case scenario if I do the startup and it fails, well, you know, I'll be eating beans and rice. But I've done that and I was perfectly happy. Right. And so that's the worst case. So I'm not afraid of that anymore. And um, so, so there is a confidence in sort of living at the bottom with voluntarily and um then then you realize well that's just the worst case so the worst case isn't so bad and therefore the risk is worth trying kevin as you said earlier with the internet there's virtually nothing you can't find and learn about uh, and and with the internet the world's never been smaller but it strikes me that as we similar to what we talked about at the top of the show it seems that most people are not students of the world are you concerned about that yeah, I am. And um, I think um, the fact that, uh, particularly in the U.S., which is so large that many people can live their entire lives without having to leave our borders, that this is um, really um, bad for the world globally and even bad for us because um, it's really important to um, be aware of and confront and work with other cultures of the world. And I think um, nothing could be better for us individually as, um, or collectively as a country um, if th than, than to give um, every student um, the option to spend a couple of years overseas um, and whether it's travel or doing work for like Peace Corps or anything else like that, I think um, we even should um, have a national service in the, in the, in the U.S., a mandatory national service where um, you do two years, whether you want to serve in the military or the Peace Corps or you just travel, um, it's subsidized by the government and um, you would come back with uh, exposure to different cultures and different peoples and different ideas and some sense of self-reliance as well. And that would transform us and our nation and take away some of the kind of crazy nationalism that um, – is a disease right now and it would open up um, people to what's really happening in, in the world and it would help them think differently about whatever they're doing whatever project they're working on they would have some new ideas that they would not get staying at home hmm. yeah that's a that's a really really profound statement there uh, let's shift to the to the future here i want to be sensitive to our time together uh I, I, kevin i don't know I, I hope i don't offend you by saying this but it frustrates me that we need futurists like you because mm -hmm. it, i think as a culture as a people we're really bad about yeah. thinking long term and and we come to i think rely on people such as yourself to do that that deep thinking for us i i, I think that's a problem and i and i wish more people were were really cognizant of of that and i'm not as i said at the very top of the show i'm not talking about looking to 2015 <laughs> i mean i there i bet you a majority of people listening to this haven't thought about uh, something two years hence when i think that's a big mistake talk about why that is so important well um you know i i see this actually in um china which i, I just came back a couple of days ago from my third trip to china this year and um the, the thing about that, that I keep 
being reminded by going to China is is the the the, the, the velocity of the, of change in that country is just is, is really very hard to convey to someone outside. It's they're, they're, I mean, here, here's one statistic that that I heard actually from Bill Gates that um, the U.S. poured uh, four trillion tons of um, concrete in the last hundred years. You know, that's a lot of concrete as we mm-hmm. built up our country. The Chinese have poured six trillion tons in the last four years. Wow. Okay. So whether it's trillions or billions, I'll forget. But the idea is is that in four years, they have done more than we've done in 100 years. And that is to show you the scale of the of the development, the speed at which this is happening. And the problem with China is that they're going like, you know, a thousand million miles an hour, but they have no idea where they're going. And, and, and this is true to some extent in, in the U.S. as well, which is that we're going very, very faster and faster, but we don't really know where we're going. We don't have this this future that we're aiming towards. We're just kind of going faster and faster. And so I think – and the faster you go, the easier it is to – you know, it's like in a race car. The easier it is to kind of have a crash because the velocity is going so fast mm-hmm. if, you, you know, if you hit a bump or something, you're, you're, you're sideswiped. And so I think um, – I think it's really uh, important to to kind of take a longer view the faster we go because it just takes longer to to make a correction. And I think um, we're we often refuse to think about the future long term because it is very difficult. I mean, the, the the reason why most people aren't is because when they when they do it, their mind just twists into a pretzel because. How can you figure this out? But that's the whole point of the exercise. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Right. You 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 need to, and I think um, there are some tricks to think about in uh, the long term future. But um, one thing is is to to not try to make predictions at the scale of any specificity because this is futile. Um, What you want to look at kind of like trends that have been going on for a long time, and those will probably continue to go. So we have a trend toward decentralization in our culture that's been operating for, you know, 50 years or more. That's that that seems to be something that will continue for another 50 years or 100 years, where we're using technology to allow us to decentralize. Organization, decentralized processes, decentralized companies, institutions, products, everything, and that that sort of a trend is is bankable. That is something that we can see continuing and and being propelled by by technology for a very long time. So, um, I think a shift from making predictions to thinking to thinking in terms of trends is one trick for for thinking about long term future. Hmm. Um, and, the, and the question that to also ask that Jeff Bezos likes to ask is uh, what things aren't going to change. That's something else that you can also um, try and conjure with for long term or the things that probably aren't going to change over 100 years or 250 years. Oh, you just blew my mind. I have never really thought about those yeah. kinds of things. Ooh, that's interesting. That's What's yeah. the bigger problem, Kevin? I mean, I, we talk about, we just spent the last few minutes talking about people not being very good about thinking about the future, but but is the bigger problem that people aren't very good thinkers, period? I mean, I, I'll talk to a guy and say, uh, do you ever do any deep thinking about things? Oh, yeah, I do it every day in the car. And, nah, you're not really. You're you're just yeah. conscious. You're just you're just zoning <laughs> out and you're listening, half, you're kind of half listening to the radio and thinking about stuff. I mean, you're not, I'm talking about very deep deep strategic thinking. Yeah, I think we're really poor at that. We, we are, and I think it's like anything else, it's probably just a habit or a skill, yeah. but 
well, there are there are things, uh, and, and people like Charles Darwin, who was a very deep thinker, one of the things that the, the tricks that he used, I call them the tricks. One of the the methods that he used was to very rigorously try to um, poke holes in his own theory and to basically um, uh, what's the word test probe critique his own theory for for where it was weak and whole and that is that's one of the most effective ways to think deeply and that's very difficult for a lot of people um, because it's um, we're not naturally inclined in that direction you want to protect what you've thought of and made and you're always looking for 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 um, reasons to agree with it but um, if you really take a methodological approach to trying to critique it and find out what's wrong you'll learn a lot more that way <laughs> yeah speaking of doing some thinking after this conversation wraps what do you see uh, this is an impossible question for you to answer so I'm just ask for some Kevin Kelly highlights um, what are the biggest opportunities you see in the future and what are the biggest risks and challenges yeah so um, the um, in terms of kind of like businesses, I think, and and uh, business opportunities in the future, I, I'm really very excited by the idea of AI as a service. Mm. This concept that um, just as we spent the previous century electrifying everything, we took almost anything we could imagine and we added electricity to it, which we bought from the grid. So we didn't really generate electricity ourselves. We just there was electricity, and we took a saw, we made electric saw, we had a can opener, we made electric can opener. We just um, added electricity to everything, and there was this innumerable, infinite number of businesses. We're going to do the same thing with AI, which we'll buy as a service from Google or whatever, and you'll buy as much AI as you want, and then you take X and add AI to it. It's going to be a huge opportunity where we're just applying smartness to everything that we had applied electricity to before, and there will be infinite numbers of ways of doing that um, and so many, so many different um, things that we can apply that to. And I think that's going to be a huge, huge uh, opportunity um, of the same scale that electricity was in the last century. Hmm. Yep. Agree with you there. Uh, about out of time, Kevin, but I would be remiss to not uh, take this opportunity to publicly thank you for your essay, A Thousand True Fans. Uh, like like many, uh, uh, really changed my whole attitude towards how I approach my market. I, uh, if I remember correctly, I think that was that was originally published around 2008. If you were to sit down and write that essay today, would it be any different? No, it wouldn't. The the, the and it's still kind of theoretical, although there is a lot more cases of people who actually have made their living by um, directly interacting with a thousand true fans. Mm -hmm. I think um, it, it's the thing which I did say, but I would emphasize is that um, there are a lot of artists and creators who don't want to deal with fans because it becomes, you know, it's a job and they would rather have uh, intermediate, have a manager or someone else do a lot of that work and therefore they have to have a kind of a larger number of fans who support it, um, but they would prefer that than, you know, than spending their time managing social networks. And mm -hmm. I, I can entirely understand that. Um, but I think the the larger point 
that I wanted to make, um, I, I might say in a different way, but which is simply there, there's um in the VC world, there's uh, the idea of a lifestyle business is sort of denigrated and saying, well, you know, they're interested in the VCs are interested in things that will scale up. They're not, they don't want, a, they're not interested in funding a lifestyle um, business, which means that it's small. It's a thousand true fans. It's a small thing. And I think I'm just trying to say, well, there's a huge, huge, huge opportunity for people who want to make a living rather than making a killing. And, um, if you're satisfied with, um, just making a living, then, um, the, the, there's a big, there's a big untapped opportunity space there because every, lots of people, particularly in the tech area, think that they have to have this infinite scale. They have to have constant growth, um, and, um, they need to make a killing or else it isn't worth doing. And I, and I think that we have tools that have changed that to say, no, you can actually have another thing where you have, we have, you're making a living rather than making a fortune or a killing. And I think, um, the tools allow us to, to do that where you're talking about a thousand or maybe between a thousand and 10,000 customers rather than having a million. And I think I'm just saying that's an opportunity that's available to people if you're willing to be satisfied with a living rather than a fortune. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, here, here on that. Well, Kevin, 36 minutes is, uh, is almost criminal. Not enough time to dive into some of these things with you. I'm, I'm hoping our paths will cross again down the road, but for, for today, we're about out of time. Before I let you go, how can people find out about the world of Kevin Kelly? Well, I have a very easy <laughs> domain, which is kk.org. So, um, and my email is kk at kk.org. So um, just check out there. Anything I do is posted or linked. Yeah, and like I said at the top of the show, there is an infinite amount of interesting information to be found at that resource. So yeah, be careful when you land there because you might <laughs> get sucked into a wormhole and, and not escape for hours at a time. Um, shoot, I wish we could talk about documentaries. I mean, that's a whole other yeah, conversation sure. yeah. we ought to have some point. So, sometime we'll, we'll do that. All right. But thanks well, Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the, the interest in Cool Tools and other, my other work. Yeah, Kevin, a real pleasure to have you. Thanks for, for providing uh, us with some v- valuable time of yours. Uh, bef- uh, uh, I, I hope uh, uh, that 2015 is a, is a great year for you and uh, appreciate, again, your time today. All right, well, that wraps this conversation. Again, on behalf of my guest, Kevin Kelly, I'm Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on Intrepid Business. What you want? What you want? 